0: For our second message today, we have a sermon from uh, Mr. Matthew Steele, entitled "Remembrances." Thank you, Reg. Reg thinks I named my my message on purpose to just give him a hard time with the a word that's a bit of a mouthful. So um, we are uh, right at the half-hour mark. I only have a two-hour message, so sit back, relax. No, I think we'll we'll get this in in time. I have a question: Are you prone to forgetting things? Yeah, I am getting more and more prone. In fact, uh, the older I get, the worse this malady seems to be getting. I forget where I put my keys. I forget things that I was supposed to do in the week. I did purchase a special little device that goes inside my wallet that makes it sing a little tune when I lose it, providing it's in range of my phone. But I don't know what I'd do if I lost my phone, because I couldn't find my wallet that... And was it a couple of weeks ago, and Benjamin will, um, he keeps bringing this up to me because I guess he thought it was pretty funny. I wanted to look something up. I had a thought. You ever have a thought? You're sitting there on the couch, maybe you're watching a TV show or you're reading and you're like, oh, I want to look that up. So I went across the house, not very far to get my tablet, come back to where I was sitting, sit down, opened up the tablet, turned it on. I forgot what I was going to look up on the tablet. That's crazy. And then a few days later, Benjamin's like, so oh, did you remember what you were going to look up yet? No. No. It's just gone. Haven't remembered it. But we all have things, though, hopefully. I mean, of course, there are some very sad, um, very awful that did- degenerative diseases that can affect the mind and and truly make a person forget uh, life and people and and so on but I think hopefully for most of us there are those moments when we forget things and there are moments that we will never forget there. and sometimes they're bad moments sometimes they're really good really good moments these remembrances are important moments in life? Do you remember your baptism? Do you remember your baptism? I remember my baptism for lots of reasons, and all the good ones that you think, but also a little bit for a teenage boy who comes up out of the water to see his dad jumping up and down and waving his arms. I'm like, "Oh, really? I understand it now. <laughs> My 17-year-old self did not understand it at the time. But we remember things. We remember things like our baptism. Uh, I remember a walk in the woods when I asked Renee to marry me. I will never forget that moment. And she will never forget it either because she felt like I was marching to my death. Because I wasn't saying anything and I was all kind of quiet and introspective. and um, Of course, I was terrified. Um, but we have different remembrances of that but we have those moments don't we and and you may have some of those similar remembrances and in fact 25 years ago this month Renee and I were standing right here it'll be about a week Wednesday and we got married and I didn't know any of you but you let me come get married in your church anyway and be part of your family I remember the day that my sons were born, and I remember a lot of you in the hospital room, being there to help us, encourage us and uh, support us in a, a challenging time, because of course, they were a little early in their birth, and you were there. We have those moments, though we? They're just etched in our minds, and you're probably thinking about them now. Uh, There could be about family. There could be spiritual. There could be revelations in life. um, It could be in your career, whatever they may be. We have these moments of joy. We have moments of sorrow sometimes. And they shape who we are. And it's interesting, that was one of the questions in the Bible study. What affected your view uh, in regards to the Bible study, of course, in, in, in regards to sexuality and sex? What affected your life to, to change your views or your understanding of those things. And there's so many things that affect us. And then we get to kind of a, what we do as communities, don't we? We remember things. We remember important moments. I, I still haven't figured out what the 4th of July is about, but it seems to be something remembered around these parts. But, you know, you can ask my son Joseph, about the ancient Egyptians and their remembrance. And these huge statues and columns and, and, and uh, images and pictographs of, of their history, they wanted to be remembered and not forgotten. And Isn't that human nature? We do not want to be forgotten. We don't want to be forgotten when we're alive, left out, not included. And we don't really want to be forgotten when we're gone. As much as we might say, well, I don't care. I won't be here. We want to be remembered. As I say, we remember culture culturally. We remember historically. We remember so many different things. So remembrance is a vital part, isn't it? It's a vital part of the human psyche, of civilization, of who we are as people. And we mark those special times, with special events. And we remember, sometimes personal, sometimes uh, together as a community. I want to look at one of these remembrances that we have as God's people. We have a remembrance, and to remember the events around it, and to start our mind thinking about what is coming in the next couple of weeks as we are moving towards Passover and unleavened bread. And there's so many different facets of that. And I would love to hit on all of them. But I want to focus on this one particular remembrance. It's found in Exodus chapter 2, beginning in verse 23. It says, Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. And then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage. And they cried out. And their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel and acknowledged them. He remembered them. And he remembered this covenant, didn't he? And it's a simple passage. And... It comes at the end of the story of Moses. You know, you read the, 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 the verses before. Moses has fled to Egypt. And he's living in Midian. And he's just having his life. And then these things start to transpire, unbeknownst to him. When this cry of his own people comes up to God. And he hears them. And this is one of those moments. I love these moments in history. I love to read history. And I love these moments because these are the moments where things actually change. Oftentimes in history books, we might look at the events that took place. We think about maybe, uh, I don't know, the D-Day landings, right? A massive event, lots of historical information and and good stuff for a a World War II buff to, to, to think about and study. But what was the real moment in which led up to that event. And it, it's sometimes interesting, it's sometimes of itself big, sometimes of itself small. Um, I would say, I would agree with Winston Churchill, that it was the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Because Winston Churchill that night went to bed and, and, and slept, he said, the soundest sleep he'd ever slept. Because now he knew that they could win war. The United States was going to come in and was going to defeat the Axis powers, power. And so you could almost say in Winston Churchill's mind that quiet moment of contemplation was a pivotal moment in history that started to change the course of human events. And that is what we have here. We have this moment when history begins to turn. And even more so, right, when God remembers his promises to us. When he remembers his promises to us When he remembers his promises to Israel, the Israelite captivity was going to come to an end. They didn't know it yet, but it had already begun. It had already begun. And the effect of this moment, we still feel today, don't we? In spite of all the attempts of of the forces of darkness to erase and blot out the truth of God, the word of God, and the attacks that we're feeling on a more regular basis as Christians, in spite of all of those efforts by the enemy, this entire world is still shaped by the story, by the narrative, by the remembrance of the children of Israel and their experience of being liberated from darkness. The Israelites in captivity, the changing of world history, and then, of course, For our own church, our own Christian belief, this was the moment things began to change, when God remembered his covenant with Abraham. So what was God remembering? What was that actual covenant that he was remembering? Well, we find it hundreds and hundreds of years earlier which is easy for us to just move back in time by flipping some pages. In Genesis chapter 15, it says in verse 1, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram, for I am your shield, your exceeding great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus, and Abram said, "Look, you have uh, look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born of my own, my house is my heir." And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, "This one shall not be your heir, but the but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir." Now, I want to point out a couple of things here. This is a very simple message, and we've heard this lots of times before, but it struck me this morning in a, in a slightly different way, and maybe you've seen it before. But firstly, I want to ask, who was Abraham talking to? Who was he talking to? Anybody want to give an answer? you all answered out on Bible study question. Who was he talking to? Well, in verses 1 and verses 4, it says, the word of the Lord came to him. You know, and sometimes you read that and you just kind of think, oh, well, you know, Abraham's meditating and God's just talking to him through the, through the Spirit. Or I don't, I don't think so, though. In this context, the word of the Lord came to him. The person of the word of the Lord came to him. And how do, who do we know that, who that is? John chapter 1. Verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So this individual that became the Word as we know it, that became Jesus Christ, was the one that was coming to Abraham. So it's a really important context for this, and this remembrance that we have, because it's fascinating what happens here. So we have two important points going on first point we have Abraham longing for his own children his own physical son an heir for his for, you know for his family for his line for everything that he has built he's longing for that and not just of you know a, a servant not just of even as we of course know later in the in the story with Hagar a a, a concubine but of Sarah, of Abraham and Sarah together. And so we have God promising that he will have a physical heir. And we know that he had that physical heir. But what you and I know that Abraham didn't know is that Abraham was talking to his heir. you Think of it that way. He was talking to his heir this word of God was going to humble himself and become a physical descendant of Abraham, of the man that he was talking to. Right there. And, of course, how could Abraham see that? If we just take a quick look in in the book of Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3, and we can see the genealogy of Jesus on his mother's side, and on his physical father's side. We can see how he descends in his physical form from Abraham. From the one that he himself was giving the covenant promise to. If this is blowing your mind, good. It's supposed to blow our mind. And we're supposed to remember Paul tells us this in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 26. He says, For you are all the sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you are or were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Heirs according to the promise. Jesus was of Abraham's seed and through him we are of Abraham's seed. And this is just a beautiful narrative of how God is creating this story, if you will. And he is there at the beginning. He is there at the beginning making the covenant promises, making this compact, with the one that he himself will then descend from in human form. And then, at the end, will finish the story that he wrote himself. At another time when Jesus was debating with the Jewish leaders, he said this, uh, it was recorded in John chapter 8, verse 49, Jesus answered, and he, you know we're jumping in the middle of a, a debate going on here, but he said, I do not have a demon. But I honor my father, and you dishonor me. And I do not seek my own glory. There is one who judges and seeks. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. And then the Jews said to him, well, now we know that you have a demon. Even Abraham is dead, right? The father of our nation is dead. And the prophets. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead, and the prophets who are dead? Do you make yourself, who do you make yourself out to be? Who do you think you are? I, that's not a question we need to ask God. You know what I'm saying? Who do you think you are? That's a very dangerous question to ask, ask Jesus. He answered. If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father who honors me, of whom you say he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. Then the Jew said to him. You're not 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham. Yeah. Jesus said to them, most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And if you want to start a bar fight with a bunch of Jewish leaders, (laughs) that's how to start it. Right? Because he is saying that he is the great I am. He is the one that gave the covenant to Abraham in the first place. And Abraham rejoiced seeing him. How many times did he rejoice seeing him? How many times did he visit with Abraham? There are many occasions. So they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, passed by. Of course he knew Abraham. And Abraham knew him rejoiced to see him, to see his appearing. It's important that we remember that. That we stop and think about that. That the handiwork of God was at work, was playing out in human history, and he he was doing it personally. The entire nation of Israel, the history of Israel, was a actual creation by his own hand. He selected Abraham. He called him out. He took him into this land of of a wilderness. He did it himself. Very deliberate. Does he do any less for you and I? Has he called us individually out of the wilderness, out of our own bondage, out of our own darkness that we were talking about in the Bible study and shed his amazing light on us and in our hearts. The word of God, the one that we know as Jesus Christ, is talking with his friend, Abraham. Promising him an heir. The one that would be called Isaac. Yes. But wrapped inside that promise is the promise of himself. The promise of his own appearing. The ultimate heir of Abraham. Christ Jesus himself was the real promise. Isaac, Jacob, the 12 sons, and all the great stories, all of that was really just a story that God could help us understand and and come to understand the, the plan of salvation. Their story, their very real story, the very real lives that they had, their story of slavery, of redemption, of liberation was the narrative by which God brings about his plan. There's a really powerful song we talked earlier about the effect of spiritual songs and hymns. And there's a really powerful song uh, that I enjoy. And it, one of the verses says this. And Father Abraham could not have dreamed of this could never understand the end of all those promises. How the pieces fit in every star and grain of sand is safely hid in Jesus' hand. You know, he only had his perspective. And of course, we're not privy to any other conversations that were maybe not recorded. But absolutely could have happened. But what was recorded, back in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 5, is this. He said, then he brought him outside. though so back with, with Jesus, talking with Abraham, the word, he brought him outside. Come outside with me. Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Have there been, of just the children of Israel, just the twelve tribes of Israel, have there been as many as the stars in heaven, or the sand by the seashore? Not even close. It has only just begun. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur the Chaldees to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? So he said, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And then he brought all of these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each opposite each other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. So we have this process, right, where God is now... Through this sacrifice process, this covenant process, with the blood of these sacrificial animals, he's affirming his process, his promise, this covenant, a blood covenant with sacrifices. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abraham, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. And then he said unto Abraham, "Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers." In the land that is not theirs, and will serve them. And they will afflict them four hundred years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possession. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it shall come to pass. But when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On the same day that the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, "To your descendants I have given this land, from the river Euphrates, uh, from from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates, the Kenites, uh, the Cadmonites, the, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim." the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. i going to give them this land. And we know this, we know this story pretty well. So back to our original question. What covenant was God remembering with Abraham? It was this covenant. It was this covenant. This agreement. He remembered it. And it was a promise of a nation born, yes, of flesh, but also a promise, wasn't it? That his descendants would fall into slavery. That they would be in terrible bondage. That they would be pilgrims and strangers wandering around on the earth. But at the end of 400 years, God would remember his promise. He would remember his promise, an act, an act to fulfill a promise. Even though Abraham is dead, what would he know? How could he hold God accountable in any way, shape, or form? He wasn't even there. And yet God honored his promise. Important for us to remember, isn't it? That when God remembers his promises, he acts. So for you and I in our lives, especially as we're moving towards Passover, in the days of unleavened bread, and we're getting into this process of examining ourselves, what are some of the most important promises that God has made to us? One that comes to mind as we, we go to Passover is that we Because it's so easy, isn't it, when we we move towards Passover, as Paul says, and we'll read it here in a minute, to, you know, we examine ourselves, and the the temptation is to say, well, I'm not good enough. Well, we already answered that question, how long ago? None of us are good enough of ourselves. But the promise is that through Christ Jesus, we can come before the throne of grace. We can participate of those symbols of his body, his blood. And we can do it without shame, without guilt, and freedom that Christ Jesus gives us. Because God remembers his promise. Just as he remembered the promises to Abraham and to Israel. If we go back to Exodus chapter 3 and verse 1, it says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert. And he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him. The Moloch of the Lord appeared to him. And a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the burning, the bush was burning with fire, but it was not consumed And then Moses said, I'm going to take a look at this thing. I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. And so when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look, God called on him in the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet. The place where you stand is holy As a family, we've been reading a book on Moses, and uh, it's Chuck Swindoll, right? And it's really interesting, and and he talked about this particular passage, and in here he pointed out something that I never really noticed before. When God is instructing Moses to take those sandals off his feet, I always thought it's kind of like, don't soil this holy ground with your yucky sandal, Right? That this is holy, and you can't have your, your nasty, goat smelling sandals on this, this holy ground. But in reality, what was really going on? When Moses took off his sandals, what was he doing? He was stepping onto holy ground, he was actually being invited to stand on holy ground and have no barrier, nothing blocking his connection to that holy place. And it was made holy, of course, only because of the presence of God. So in a certain sense, Moses is getting invited into the holiness of God. And isn't that what we are seeing every time we celebrate Passover, every time we remember Christ, our Passover, God wants no barriers between us and Him. He said, Moreover, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face because he knew of this God. He heard of this God. He heard the stories that nobody sees this God and lives. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the the land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to a place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Same people that were there in that land when Jesus was talking with, Moses, uh, with with Abraham, saying, I'm going to give this land. He remembered his promises. Now therefore behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, children of Israel, out. And Moses' heart sunk. Because that was not his plan. He didn't want to do this at all. And we can read the somewhat humorous engagement that goes on. There's no idea. This was never entered into his mind for him to do. But notice the detail. As I mentioned before, God is remembering with exacting detail all the elements and the promise that he made to Abraham. And now he was taking those steps to fulfill it. A plan. And a story. Of creation. Of redemption. And it started hundreds of years before. I don't know about you. But sometimes I really wish God does not play the long game. You know. But sometimes he does work in our lives like that. Doesn't he? And it will take a long time. And. And. Maybe it's us. That we're not receptive or ready to hear. Or maybe it's just his plan. He was playing the long game here for sure. Hundreds of years ago. But now this promise is going to be fulfilled. Uh, There are going to be great miracles. There are going to be plagues, struggles, battles, wilderness wanderings along the way. But the outcome was a foregone conclusion. God was going to fulfill his promise. The author of the story of Abraham's descendants was already in process. It was already written in advance. It reminded me of the, the passage in Hebrews chapter 12. In verse 1, he says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. and Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Jesus authored this story. He told Abraham that he was going to give him his, his offspring, his children. But they were going to go in slavery, and they did. And then he was going to remember them when they were in slavery, and he did. He was the author of their story. And then he comes back around to finish it. Who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. This same author of the story of Israel, of, of their entire existence and their journey from beginning to end is the same author that is writing our lives and his plan. It's important for us to remember that. That is an important remembrance. But there's another remembrance that I'd like to remind us of t- today. I touched on it earlier as I to close this message. It's wrapped up in the promises that God gave to Abraham so long ago. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. But the Lord Jesus Christ, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me remembrance of him. Remembering what he did for us. And why he did it for us. In the same manner, he also took the cup after saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. This do, as often as you drink it, and remember of me. We remember him. We need to remember him. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And then as I mentioned earlier, then Paul says, therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and and so let him or her eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks unworthily in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, When you come together to eat, wait for one another. You know, Paul is definitely giving us a caution. He's definitely (laughs) encouraging us to be self-aware, to take steps, to examine ourselves as we approach Passover season. But when we do that, let's remember that through Christ Jesus, we are being made worthy. That him in us has made us worthy to take of this cup, to take of this bread. It's not a time for condemning ourselves. It's a time for us to accept without shame and without self-condemnation and to remember what he has done. And the other part, proclaim his death until he comes back. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that is soon.